Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Welcome back, everyone, for another great episode of Wild Connection, the podcast. One of the many reasons I love doing this podcast is because I get to highlight some of the people I've known or worked with in the area of conservation. I've really been fortunate to connect with some incredible people over the years, and my guest this week, international wildlife conservation expert Craig Bruce, is one of them. As you'll hear, Craig has dedicated his life to conservation, sustainable utilization, and community engagement. Although the latter two are rather trendy right now, he's been practicing both for quite some time. In many ways, Craig has lived the life I dreamt of years ago when I read Cry of the Kalahari by Mark and Delia Owens, two biologists that struck out on their own path to study hyenas and lions in the Kalahari Desert. I personally never imagined I would end up in academia or the academy, as some people call it. Instead, I was sure that I was going to be more like Craig, doing real on-the-ground conservation in communities for species around the world. His impact, like his personality, has been large, and not just on me. I'm grateful that he's my friend and that I was able to have him on the show. Before we get to Craig, I just want to remind you, you can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. There you'll find interesting links about the content of this episode, as well as ways to catch up with Craig or keep up with us. Okay, on to the show. As I mentioned, Craig Bruce has been an international wildlife conservation expert for a few decades, and he's got a soft spot for large mammals. He got his start and developed a strong foundation by managing protected areas in various parts of Africa, and later became a leader in some major organizations and contributed to the protection of many different species. In a world polarized on so many issues, Craig and I invite you to think about how we can and should come together, work together, have respect for one another, understand each other, help each other, all while being committed to protecting all the species that we share the planet with so that they and we can continue to be, well, alive. All right, everybody, I am so excited to bring on the show Craig Bruce, a great friend and wildlife conservationist. Thank you for being here. No, thank you very much, Jen, for inviting me. It's, it's great to be able to talk to you. Yeah, well, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, um, not quite the entire time that you've been active and involved and, and shaping conservation, uh, but, but close to it. Uh, so I was, a, a, so to let everybody know, you know, I, I've known you for almost 20 years. 
That's right. That's yeah, right. Or, or maybe more than 20 years. I don't know. <laughs> We're getting there. So, so quickly. Yeah, I think it's more than 30 years. Right? I think I think it is. So, you know, and I don't know if you know this whole story. So so I actually met you when I applied for a job. Um, and we're, we'll talk about what you were doing at that time in, in just a minute. But but it was, a, it was a you know, it was probably not the best job for me. <laughs> but but how I found you and that job was because I had just started graduate school at, at NAU in Flagstaff, Arizona. But I really just wanted to get to Africa, like anywhere in Africa, doing anything in Africa. And I had tried with the Peace Corps, but they sent me to Nepal. So that was a little out of my range uh, of target. And I, I almost applied to be on Survivor. Who knew it was going to become such a hit show? Yeah. And it, instead, I, I found this job ad and I applied. And I cannot even imagine what you thought. Well, what is this girl doing applying for a job over here? No, I distinctly remember that. And I, I think I was I was so astonished. And that's how we that's how we initially started corresponding. And uh, what's interesting is just thinking about you saying that. I mean, that's the, the concept of having interns coming out to help with conservation um, in Africa. And nothing much has changed because in my current position, which is actually based in the UK, I've just put out an advertisement today uh, for a whole lot of interns um, or, or to a whole lot of interns to apply for positions. So it's amazing how the wheel turns and these things kind of repeat themselves over and over again. Yeah. So would I, would I get, would I, would you hire me now? Absolutely. Drop of the head. <laughs> well, and, you know, a friendship was born out of that correspondence, you know, yeah. uh, continents away from each other. And um, and then we had the opportunity to meet when you came stateside for a convention. And I'll never forget that, you know, you brought me this uh, self-righteous, indignant wildlife lover. Uh, I saw your zebra skin. And that's right. Yeah, I remember well. I remember well your your shock. That's right, and that that sparked though many of our conversations that to me through the years have, you know, everybody's so polarized on things these days, and mm-hmm. and here we were coming from really different backgrounds, and and you impacted me so much in thinking differently about. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to to have conservation? What is sustainability? And I know that you have worked uh, very hard uh, in your career and in your life to uh, make an impact, and and you have on me. But I, I think now people should hear from you a little bit about who you are and, and what you are currently doing, and then we can talk about the path to how you got there. No, sure. No, thank you. Um, I just just got two things that came up as you were talking, and the one is this: how the world has become very polarized across so many different spheres, and and we see it in politics and religion and all over the place. And that is no different, as you pointed out, in conservation nowadays. So, I think that's you know that's an interesting point at which to begin this discussion. I think one of the beauties of our relationship, and we we are quite different people, I think, and we have very different histories and backgrounds in approaching wildlife and conservation in general. But as you pointed out, we've always been able to have that conversation and we've always been able to respect each other's point of views. And I think that's at this point in time, for conservation's sake, that's really what the world needs. You know, so um, 
maybe just starting, well, let's start where, where you were talking about. That's a good place to start. So at that point in time, I was a protected area manager. So I worked managing uh, conservation areas in Africa, and that has been sort of the foundation of my life in conservation. I, I'm a Zimbabwean. I grew up in Zimbabwe. And I come from a family uh, of, said, sadly to say, uh, professional hunters. My, my uncle was a professional hunter. My father was a hunter. And so it, it's, it's kind of a tradition in my family. But I think I saw very at a very young age, uh, and it was driven by them just how these things were interlinked, you know, the need the need for conservation if you were if you were going to be involved in hunting for the next generation and, and just for your future needs and so on. And that really drove me to walk down this conservation path. And as a result, I ended up as I'm one of those people that as a young child, I had a vision of what I was going to be and that came true. So I think I'm really fortunate in that respect. And really fortunate to have grown up in Africa. I'm, I'm a fifth generation African, so I have an enormous amount of history there. And to have had the opportunities that I did and I realized that I've been very I've been very blessed in that, in that a lot of people don't have those sort of opportunities. So, yeah, so 20 years as a, as really as a protected area manager uh, with a focus on on large mammals, so uh, rhinoceros, uh, Cape buffalo, lions, elephant, um, and that, that was where my love was. But at the same time, of course, in, if you're involved in conservation and protected area management, then it, it covers the whole ambit of species and and really looking after what I like to call those umbrella species really serves to make sure that everything involved in that ecosystem where they can survive is protected as well. So it's kind of a good indicator of, of healthy uh, systems, I think, when you've got apex predators and these large herbivores that are capable of not only existing but thriving in these environments. Those are good, that's a good indicator that this is a really good environment ecosystem for them. Um, so in that period of time, you know, I think in what just very a typical um, African fashion, uh, there was a lot of you know what we call sustainable utilization or community-based natural resource management in the sphere of what I did. I mean, you know, what I think what a lot of people are not aware of is that in Africa, in a lot of the communities in Africa, the rural communities specifically, there's a there's a there's this day-to-day living with large animals, and that's that's not an easy thing um, because they're big and they can be sensitive and they're often sensitive to humans and they often have a fear of human beings. So, you know, on, on the on the daily going about of your daily tasks, um, running into elephant or running into rhino or running into big predators like lions is, is something that happens to people. And um, so that that forms part of their daily lives. And then, of course, you know, Africa is not an easy place. Many of the environments are incredibly arid. And in these areas, people utilize wildlife. They use it for protein and, um, of course, utilize the skins and other things at the same time. And so, so there's, a large, there's a large portion of wildlife management, I guess, in, in, in Africa that revolves around and has done for millennia now, revolves around the sustainable use of wildlife. Of course, that's changing and has, has changed over years. But no, so that was, you know, that became a, a real interest to me. I initially think when I started out, um, way back when as a ranger in the Timavati next to the Kruger National Park, I had all of these dreams 
uh, about just being in the bush with elephant by myself sort of thing, you know. So I, and I and I did it as a young person because I didn't get on well with people, generally speaking. And then over the years, I just discovered, well, conservation is really about people. And uh, and I think that, you know, those experiences really helped me to understand that this interface between humanity and 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 conservation, the, the wildlife species that we many of us so desperately want to protect is really the that's the coalface. That's where it all happens, and that's where we need to be focused in terms of our conservation efforts. Uh, absolutely, and no. we're gonna oh, we're we're gonna talk a little bit more about all of that, but but I didn't want to interrupt your next your next sort of phase, right, in your development of of many of the. Uh, important things that you just said, uh, which we're going to dig into. Uh, so, so what happened next? Well, yeah. So I had, you know, I had this fantastic experience um, in Southern Africa. You know, working and working across Southern Africa, Botswana, Namibia, uh, Zimbabwe, my place, my birth, South Africa in particular, uh, and managing protected areas. And 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 you know, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine a better life um, being in the middle of the bush all the time. You've just described what it looks like outside your win- window. And if you if you picture that in an African context with the rhinos walking past my window every day and the leopards and all and everything that's involved in wildlife. So it was a very much kind of national geographic um, experience growing up in that. But then um, I think like in all in all careers, at a point in time, I, I, you know, I had I had reached a point where I was managing a network of protected areas at a number of protected area managers underneath me. I was um, building capacity in young people, etc., and I was spending a lot of time behind the desk. And I got an opportunity with the World Wildlife Fund. They reached out to me, and of all places in the world. Uh, they they asked me if I'd like to go as chief technical chief technical advisor to Cambodia uh, on a big landscape project, which they were actually looking specifically for uh, a South African or an African style protected area manager because the original consultants who had visualised the project were all South African and and they really wanted to do the same things, bring back wildlife, increase numbers, protect protect the area properly, and so. I um I did one of those strange things and I made a decision, said, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the World Wildlife Fund to Cambodia. And I did that and ended up, I'd originally, I originally thought I was going on a two-year contract and that was what we signed up. And I thought, that's great. I'll take a break, have this experience. It'll be great for me you know, to learn about new places and how wildlife's managed there, et cetera, et cetera. So, and lo and behold, almost 10 years later, I was still there, of course, moving up and doing various other things. But um, I, uh, after the initial experience of, of really managing this 1.2 million hectare landscape in the dry forests of Cambodia, which is an ex- absolutely stunning area as well, and has all of these strange creatures that we don't often hear of, like um, banting and... Uh, which are a, a species of wild cattle and the cuprae, which is believed to be now extinct and and wild buffalo and so on. It it was just an amazing experience and so different for me. Um, but when I was when I was on working in that particular position, which was really you know doing what I did before, just managing this massive landscape, I got quite intimately involved with um, with tigers and doing occupancy surveys on tigers and so on and just you know, trying to figure out how many were in that area and um, 
so again, coming back to that large mammal thing, you know, that the, the, the attraction is always there. So I spent a lot of time working on tigers. And then as, as time passed with WWF, I moved up there, came back to me and said, look, you've, you know, this model's great. We like what we've, you've done here. We really want you to be an advisor basically across Asia, uh, working for what at the time was uh, the Tigers Alive initiative uh, based in Central Asia and traveling to a large variety of Asian countries where there were tiger reserves, where tigers were being protected in conservation areas, whether that was in or out. Sorry, you wanted, I'm talking a lot. No, 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 I wanted you to finish your, your statement. Um, but uh, so so before we, we talk more specifically about tigers, you know, something that occurred to me is is the cultural landscape too changed, right? Not just the, the habitat landscape and the different species, uh, but but the cultural landscape shifted for you when you made this decision. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, what did you learn about managing a, a conservation area in such a different cultural landscape? No, that's a great question. Thank you. And I, and, and I think the cultural landscape is is significant. I mean, when I when I first arrived there, and they they literally took me straight into the bush and I ended up in the middle of this huge area at a basic camp with all of these potential rangers and none of them spoke a word of English and, and I I didn't have a lot of Khmer at the time either. So, so that was a good start. But then it was also total immersion. So I got to learn a lot of the language very quickly and, and got to learn about the people. And as you say, that, you know, learning the culture, learning people's attitude, about people's attitudes to wildlife. But what is really interesting is that while I don't think you can ever take any one model and and literally pick it up and put it in another place, I think that a lot of the models that we had created in Africa, and I think that was WW's intent, can be modified uh, and could be modified or still being used and modified, and vice versa as well, models created in Asia, um, can be used in different contexts, and particularly when you're looking at community-based natural resource management and working with communities. And we had really some fantastic successes in in moving models that had originated in Africa and, and adapting them, sometimes with a lot of adaption to suit uh, the local environment, but nevertheless very successfully. So I think while languages change and certainly people's traditions and cultures change, uh, the wants and needs of people, those basic wants and needs uh, across the planet are basically the same, you know. Uh, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and yes, there is pro- there are problems with it, but those those fundamentals are what people are looking for. And when you're when you're dealing with people in this wildlife context, the predator might be different. It might be a tiger and not a lion, for example, but it's still a large predator, and it still has the same impact. And Asian and African elephants are different, but but they they do the same things you know if they're in your rice paddy or they're in your maize field it doesn't really make much difference you still got to try and chase them out of there so right. so yes it, it it certainly was a culture shock for me that that i will say but what was interesting is all of these synergies and similarities that that happened along the way which were which were fascinating well, I, I think that you just said that so eloquently that that we can't ignore that the basic needs of people, um, even if they're specific cultures or traditions, 
right, are, are, might differ from place to place, those basic needs need to be satisfied. And, and whether it's elephants in, in, in one part of Africa or elephants in another part of Asia, if they're coming into your village and they're destroying your, your resources, there's going to be a conflict and you got to find a way to solve it um, so that coexistence can happen. So I want to go back to where you were heading with the, you know, now you, you went from just being in this one area in Cambodia to uh, managing and, and uh, growing this Tigers Alive initiative across countries. So um, what was the objective and the goal of that initiative? Well, yeah, that's, a, that's also another really great question and, and, and also, I think, a success story. The initiative really began around uh, the 2010-11 year of the Tiger uh, and that was sort of seen as really a good kickoff point um, to get uh, this idea, I guess, of or concept of doubling the number of tigers in Asia moving. And what's really interesting about that, I, and I, you know, we we if we look at conservation, it tends to be those of us, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, those of us have worked in it for a long time. It tends to can be a little bit pessimistic, um, and it's easy to get depressed about what's going on, and and it's easy to give up hope because there's there are so many stories of just sad stories, and there's you know species decline, and every year there's reports put out about how many species we've lost, and we see this erosion of the beautiful natural areas, and we're constantly getting these negative stories about the environment, so it's difficult to stay optimistic often about that. But I think uh, Tigers Alive was a good initiative by WWF. And one of the things that it did was really generate a lot of this optimism because uh, a large majority of the countries that signed up for it, and this is this is kudos to the governments of those countries and the uh, conservation organizations within them that represent the state, uh, signed up to actually commit to doubling this number of tigers. And you tend to find in, in, in conservation generally that we're in a bit of a holding pattern, that we just want to hang on to what we've got. We're never, because of the demands on it, we're never looking to expand those areas. We're just kind of fighting for every inch as it decreases. So I think this doubling the number of cycles sent a little bit of a different message and say, well, let's look at this differently. Let's actually try and expand. This is now, this is the expansion of a population of apex predators. So you can imagine the the ripple effect that that has. I mean, you talked, you, you touched on human wildlife conflict. Well, human tiger conflict is uh, is a huge thing in places like India and Nepal, and and has a has an impact on thousands and thousands of people's lives. You know? Right, and and unlike elephants, where you could just put up a bee fence. Um, and and keep them away because uh, for the listeners who may not know this, uh, elephants really don't like bees, which is slightly funny, but also a useful thing to know when you want to keep them a, a little bit at a distance and also make honey. So that's a, a really useful thing. But I don't think tigers would be terribly deterred by a bee fence. Bee fence, no, they are. They are certainly a lot more difficult to keep out of areas, and generally speaking, um, not that you know, not that many people don't die killed by elephants in places like India as well. That that is a reality. But as you say, there just is something about predators, and particularly the a predator the size of tigers, that's incredibly dangerous. It's not, it's not the kind of thing you want to have in your backyard, generally speaking. Correct. So when you say that it was a success story, uh, really, what what does that mean for you as someone who 
you know, I can't even stress how passionate and knowledgeable uh, and committed you have been and are to advancing good conservation. So what does that look like for you when you say something was really a success story? Well, I think that, um, you know, the targets that we set in that, and I, I mean, it's, it's a good, oh, again, time passes by so quickly, doesn't it? It's a good almost 10 years since I've, I've moved away from Asia. Um, but the targets that we set for those, many of the, and this is one of the joys for me, many of the young people that I mentored in that particular position are now, you know, really successfully leading the charge on things like, protection and tiger reserves and and management of these particular areas and and what you've seen is that in in a number of places where where this objective was set that they actually have managed to double the number of tigers um so when i say success story i think the proof is always in the pudding and and so we've actually seen those numbers coming out you know in genuine and rigorous scientific surveys um, large camera strapping surveys in places like in nepal they've been able to demonstrate that they actually have managed to increase the number of tigers um hundred percent. So you've got you've got this expanding tiger population, which does, of course, as we've already pointed out, come with its problems. But it is, I think, you know, it's a great story, and it's and it's an indicator of of what we can do if we put our minds to it. And I think it was, you know, there were a lot of large ministerial meetings around that whole episode. I spent many hours of my my life in in big conference halls, etc., talking to various members of government and ministers and so on. That were, but there was they, they, they you know, it was galvanised by senior senior government members at ministerial and prime ministerial level, and people like uh, Mr. Putin were involved and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of energy generated, and when these countries got together and actually committed to doing this, I think they, you know, it's a celebration of a success in that particular arena. Right. And that actually speaks to the human centered aspect of conservation, because we're the ones that create the situation that then needs to be reversed and conserved. And so I know you've worked with a lot of people, both at those high levels and on the ground. And I, I think you were involved with training also in terms of rangers and how to protect areas. So talk to me a little bit about what is that? What is that? look like and you know what do you think is the most successful approach for integrating humans into solving the problems that that we've created yeah i personally believe that it's letting letting the people that are on the ground you have a major stake, um, if not well, the major stake in terms of decision-making when we're talking about conservation of wildlife. To the largest extent, these are people that have lived with wildlife all of their lives, um, have generally, for generations, have been living with it, as I said, at the coalface on a one-on-one on, one on one relationship with these animals. They, they have often been utilising, if not the wildlife di- directly, then then certainly, you know, resources from the habitat all over the place. And in many areas in Africa is the best example of this, perhaps. Resources, animals are used for protein. And that's just the reality of it. Because in many of those areas, they can't, um, 
it's just not easy to grow things in, in places like the deserts of Namibia and, and Botswana, et cetera. And so, so that offtake really becomes what they survive on. So letting these people be the decision makers in terms of, of how they should manage it. They know what sustainability is. They, you know, it's not a con- we We touted, I think, in the West often there's some nouveau concept, but to people in Africa and over, sustainability for them is about survival. If a thing is not sustainable, they're not going to survive. So I think looking at that and then just from the conservationist perspective, being able to facilitate, you know, the human greed is a reality. And if something's not if something's not useful to humanity, then generally it's not something that lasts. So really really facilitating a situation where people can make use of their wildlife and there's a motivation for them to live in harmony with that wildlife and they're benefiting from that in some way or form. And it's encouraged by the world at large because then those these key biodiversity areas, these big biodiversity areas get uh, preserved and they're not replaced with some kind of livestock farming or some kind of agricultural activity, which tends to be the sort of um, step you know what what do we do when we can't benefit from this anymore we're being prohibited from it it's all owned by somebody else and 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 we can't survive in this area well then we move to clearing this area for agriculture we find some other uh, way to create incomes for our families so that our children can go to school so that we can eat and so on and so forth so i think it's you know as i said these people uh, the large majority of people that are living in these kind of areas, in these areas that we want to preserve and conserve and protect, we can have a conversation about preserve and protect. And, oh yes, we will. Uh, we're, but, we're gonna we're gonna go there for sure. So I think, but I think you know, for me, and that's and and that's an interesting conversation because people see conservation often as a very protectionist, preservationist thing. And what I'm suggesting is that in the models, the models that we've seen work well, which I've had a lot of experience in, in Asia, in Africa, even in North America, where where sustainable utilization is a big reality for a lot of people. And with that model, you've seen an increase in, in wildlife populations, in deer populations, in bear populations. Uh, when you compare it to, for example, the turn of the century, South Africa is no different, you know, um, at the a hundred years ago in South Africa, there were like there were 20, 120 elephants alive. Now, you know, that's twenty five thousand elephants. Right. Um, and this has been this has been exactly that model, and it's not perfect by any stretch, but it's been replicated where people have realized there's a value to this. Uh, we can use it. We can keep these areas as they are. We can maintain the biodiversity. That's a byproduct of this. Uh, but we can benefit basically from this. And if we can manage it ourselves and are allowed to do that then in there is a, I think is a very successful model for, for conservation as a whole. Right. Well, okay. So, so with the tiger initiative, tiger alive, there were areas that saw doubling of tiger populations and, and that's a win, right? When did you, what led you to leave that program and take your next challenge and where did you go? Yeah, so that that's also an interesting one. Oh, I think it is anyway. <laughs> um, it so as in as in everything um, in life, I have um, two young daughters, and of course, I had now left their home in Africa when they were fairly young, and they had been having this incredible experience traveling all over Asia, visiting different countries, and so on. But um, they got to a point in life where. 
they they needed to, you know, further education, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think it just also, the timing was just right after after many years of, it's hard work, Jennifer, you know, the conservation, as I said, it can wear you down. And, and I think all, knowing, all NGOs are the same, uh, conservation NGOs, conservation departments. Uh, people are, people for the vast, the vast majority of people doing this are doing it because they love it and because they have a passion for it. And, you know, the, the, the money is never important. It's, you know, it's about what we, what we can do here, what we can achieve, but that does take its toll because you end up doing three people's jobs. And I think a lot of NGOs are super successful because of what everybody does in their spare time. I think after a while that, that, that does get to you. And I was doing an enormous amount of traveling. You can imagine, uh, you know, from one area to another, constantly on the move, constantly looking at new protected areas. And I think I, I burnt out a little bit, just, you know, just committing so heavily to everything. Made a decision uh, basically as a family to move to the United Kingdom, which is where I am now, which is just as big a shock for me as it is for everybody else. Um, and, and basically that revolved around, you know, my children's education, et cetera. But I was really fortunate in that even before um, I left uh, Asia, I'd been offered a position by the Zoological Society of London. And interestingly enough, that position was uh, focused on Africa and Eastern Southern Africa, which was fantastic for me because I, for me it was like if I was going to the UK, in an essence, I was coming home. Anyway, I started off there, and this is, this is the interesting part. I started off and obviously arrived uh, at ZSL and uh, Zoological Society and got involved in things. I spent a lot of time in Africa in that period of time uh, while I was waiting for my visa. So I got to go back to South Africa for some period. I spent a lot of time in Kenya at that time where we have where ZSL is a big project. And... Um, and in that period of time, while that was all happening and I was, you know, working, get, getting that part of the Africa program together, uh, the regional coordinator of the Zoological Society is now the regional coordinator of all of the programs in the conservation program came to me. And it's somebody that I knew really well and I have an awesome amount of respect for. She basically said to me, look, there's a position going as the head of the Asia Conservation Program. And, uh, and we don't have anybody and we're battling to find somebody with the depth of experience that you have in Asia as a conservationist. So would you consider, we know you love Africa and you'll still be engaged in parts of that, et cetera, and you know, run impact investments and so on, but um, would you consider taking up that position? And of course, as I said, I, the person I had a huge amount of respect for and, and, and liked a lot and had worked with in the past. So. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I ended up being uh, the head of the Asia program at the Zoological Society, which is the largest conservation program that um, ZSL has at the time. Nine countries, nearly 350 people at the time. Um, and again, a large variety now, not focused only on tigers, but I mean, a large part again of our work was tigers, but um, also all the other species now as part of that broader, you know, Asia conservation programs, so pangolins and elephant and um, marine species, you name it, across the board. So that then became an incredibly busy and interesting period of my life where I had fortunately had a fantastic team on the ground of you know, local people in each one of these countries engaged uh, in conservation from Mongolia to Indonesia to the Russian Far East and was able to work with a really fantastic team of knowledgeable conservationists and uh, 
and rolled out, you know, what, again, what was one of the most successful programs in the Zoological Society of London as, as far as conservation successes went. So that, you know, so that I spent then the next um, five, six years of my life uh, doing that for, for the Zoological Society of London and applying, of course, everything that I'd learned on the ground in both Africa and Asia um, to my position as the head of the head of the program there. So, yeah, very very exciting time, incredibly busy. You know, dealing with issues from, as you say, community-based natural resource management to climate change and how does that impact them. Um, so, really, a, a broad sphere of of conservation activities and conservation experience. Yeah. Well, you know, what I want to draw everyone's attention to is what I keep hearing too from you. Not 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 wanting to acknowledge that there are challenges and problems, but what I also keep hearing from you is there there's successes and you've been involved with those successes. And I, I believe, because I know you, so I might be a little biased, you've been instrumental in creating those successes because of the perspective that you bring. And you know, I think that that a lot of Western sort of models of conservation are we go in and we tell you people who live here don't use it you can't go there it's banned and there's a lot of finger wagging and judgment about what you do and and i feel like that creates that sets up failure and and so this sustainable utilization you know, I know people are saying, oh, now we got to, you know, community-based conservation is a really new initiative, but it's not. And you talking about that and what your experience is, is decades of experience in literally community-based conservation. And I want to circle back to the beginning where we were talking about this zebra, zebra. Um, I always say zebra when I think of you. <laughs> um, but I remember you, I was very, I objected a lot to that. And I rem I will never forget what you said to me, where you said, excuse me, what is the problem? So, so someone shot the zebra and it fed an entire village. What's the issue? And I, I remember thinking like, oh, right. How privileged, right? I go to the supermarket and I buy whatever I want. And so isn't it a really privileged position for me to take that attitude and it's also quite disrespectful although i may not hunt personally um, and i may choose not to consume meat and maybe i object to industrialized farming and i wish instead that there was much more you know reduced consumption in the west that's contributing to a lot of problems and instead you know a more sustainable use of of wildlife as food, you know, we seem to be okay with insects. I mean, there's a, uh, I just did an episode on the, here the cicadas are coming out. There's about a trillion of them emerging in brood 10. And there's all these recipes floating around, like you should eat them, right? So somehow that's okay. Uh, you know, so, so I guess, you know, my question is to you, how do you also deal with the, I'm sure you've encountered people who don't come with this sustainable utilization, community-based focus. Mm. So how do you how do you deal with them? It's a huge challenge, and I think it's you know it's 
as you say, things are becoming so polarized in the world that we live in. And and a lot of people's reaction to this is very emotional and 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 visceral and knee-jerk. And I've I've had that experience you know many times in my life, and particularly recently, as I get more and more involved in in community-based natural resource management and, and I'm now really championing them sustainable utilization. But you know, you've touched on some some really salient points there. And I think and I think some of the challenges around us really describe nicely what you're what you're saying right now. Instincts is a perfect example. In both Africa and Asia, traditionally you have a huge culture of protein from insects, and it was only when Western Western influence came along and Westerners came along and said, "Oh, that's disgusting, and you can't do that." That that started to change, and you know there's a there's a massive opportunity um, to harvest protein from insects in a very sustainable way, uh, which would which would take a lot of pressure off our, off our wildlife resources in so many ways. So there's a good example. And the irony of it is things like, in many cases, people just treat, as you pointed out, all of these things differently. So it's almost okay to eat a fish but and and catch one and do that, but it's not okay to do that to an impala or some other antelope or a white-tailed deer, for example. So there's this... Um, there's these weird contradictions inside the argument, first of all. But then I think you've, and this goes back to what we were saying about let people decide, you know, the, the people that are living with it. And, and that's, I think, you know, what you're saying about me is I, I'm a conservation practitioner. I'm not an academic. I'm not, I'm somebody that's lived and worked with conservation all my life. I've had the privilege to do that. And I think the thing, the, the take on lesson, as I've, we've already spoken about for me, is that you've got to respect the people that are living and working with these animals on the ground every single day of their lives. And as you rightly point out, I have, you know, huge respect for for the beliefs and attitudes of uh, you know, people that are vegans and and people that don't agree with the killing and I'm, I'm, you, for example, you aren't a hunter and it's not something you subscribe to. But at the same time, as you've pointed out, in in a in a culture where this is something that has been done for generations, where it is sustainable, where these people are benefiting in an enormous way, even if they're they're using that opportunity and getting it financed from somewhere else. If someone else is taking the zebra off for them. And they're, they're then benefiting not only from the meat, but they're also benefiting from a fee that's being paid for it. So that that's just a good business decision. That just, you know, that sends my kids to school and, and, and buys me the Honda Dream 125 I need to get to the shop in the back, which is 25 miles away. So it, I find it really difficult um, unless you're going to get into a situation, and I think we're we're heading towards that where you're saying, well, are the rights of these animals more important than the rights of these people to survive? And, and then there is a balance in there somewhere, and it's a very difficult question. I don't believe that there's a single answer for it, but most certainly it's, it's telling, and it's really up to those people to decide. And when when you when you see the successes that happen in these environments where people continue to live in harmony harmony i put that in inverted commas but sustainably with these animals and those populations continue to increase on both sides people have been it, it's a fantastic thing to see you know and you take other examples of where this ability to you know utilize the resources sustainably has gone away and immediately you see a decline in the wildlife populations you see a decline uh in biodiversity it's it's it, there's good examples of this happening all over the place so 
So yeah. I think you know, dealing with this, you try and explain this, and it's a difficult thing to explain, Jen, incredibly difficult to people. Um, but it's really about respecting each other and our and and, and each other's opinions and saying, well, you know, look at this model, look at what happens here. Just dig a little bit deeper into what happens. And as you thought about it at the time, and it's uh, again, I think what why we're friends and 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 I appreciate you just being able to think. And I, you know, I can distinctly recall at that time you were still doing your research and it was uh, period dog as I remember and there a couple of happy go lucky lucky fellows just vaporizing you know your study site at the time and I was shocked by that you know because I don't you know everybody has everybody has feelings about these things etc well and they're not eating them they're just vaporizing them to vaporize them right that's yeah. the thing it's not like when we and in fact if people hunted prairie dogs to eat them um, like they have ducks, right? Or uh, even if they're not eating ducks, duck hunting, well, they wanted to keep hunting ducks. So they are big in, they're the drivers. Duck hunters have been the drivers of conservation of duck species in the United States for mm-hmm. hundreds of years, like 200 years uh, approaching. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, in, in some way, if prairie dogs were a game species, their population wouldn't be declining by 98% and, you know, being warranted to be listed on the endangered species list, right, which creates headaches and problems for everyone. And and so, you know, this is interesting because I, I also heard in something you said, the irony, I did not know that it was really outsiders coming in and telling communities like, ooh, don't eat insects, that's gross, that, that you know, had such an impact and influence. And now the irony is we're circling back in the United States and maybe other places of cookbooks and recipes for how to incorporate insects because it's a more sustainable protein. Mm-hmm. And then we act like it's a new thing, right? But it's really something we stripped from other communities through our judgment. And now we're we're reinventing as if it's new when it's it's not. And so mm-hmm. I think this is the same thing with community-based conservation and sustainable utilization and speaks to some of the things that you've been talking about. This isn't new. And and I think that not just um, being a practice. Oh, go ahead. No, you just, you, I forgot to mention, but another thing you touched on as well was this um, industrial meat farming, as you were saying, which is how, you know, we get most of the beef products that most people are buying off the shelf, uh, which is causing an enormous amount of problem from an environmental perspective. And uh, if you look at, if you look at a good model um of sustainable utilization and and you start replacing that commercial beef farming operation with that kind of sustainable utilization. Um, you do all of the things that you want to do. One, you get people to appreciate uh, what they're actually consuming in, in a more significant way. You get a much, much healthier product that's not full of hormones and too fatty and been injected a hundred times and fed grain and stood in its own excreta for goodness knows how long. So you're getting a much healthier product. 
Um, you yourself are getting an enormous amount of mental and physical health benefits by actually participating in exercise where you actually have to harvest your own meal. Um, and it you know, it adds a whole new dimension with it and puts aside a lot of those issues that we ha- will put aside a lot of those issues we have with this commercial production, you know, farming model we have, which is a disaster. It is a disaster. And that you know, follow the thread here is bringing us to this preservationist, protectionist mm-hmm. mindset. And there's been this promotion of this idea. Now they're framing it like we have to reshape our thinking about nature and resources and make it less anthropocentric or human centered. And so everything out there must be protected and, and preserved. And what that what they actually mean by that is you can't use it and you can, you can't go in it, but we can pay to come visit it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And and so. How do we get out there, really, the message that, hey, you want things that work? These are the things that work. You may be an academic, but I got the data to show you that this is the way that this works. Mm-hmm. And, and everything else is going to fail. And how do we start to create that shift in, in people to recognize that those sort of banning use, banning you know, interaction of the people that live there... I'm not talking about tourists who want to come and take a selfie with an elephant, which, you know, we can have another conversation about that. How do, how do you get the word out and, and what are you doing now uh, to continue to promote that? Well, I think the answer to your question is this has really become and is a human rights issue. So these, these people on the ground in Asia and Africa, they have a right and that right is to be able to utilize their resources as they see fit um, and in a sustainable way. And it's really that right we need to stand up and defend. It's really that right becomes our argument for this very solid conservation model is that this this is a human this is a human rights issue. It's not about and you, whoever you might be, and whatever your beliefs might be, wherever you might be sitting, have a right to have all of those things. But you don't have a right to enforce that doctrine, that preservationist doctrine, on a whole lot of people in another place that are doing just fine managing their natural resources. So I think the essence of it is lies around human rights and us recognizing. And and from for conservationists who wanted to get engaged, and and I, and I say conservationists specifically there because. One of the things about an African, or generally speaking about African conservationists, is they see that that management side of conservation, the sustainable offtake, all of those things, as an intrinsic part of the conservation model. And as you've alluded to, and you're 100% right, the word conservation for many people, particularly in the West, has now become this very protectionist, preservationist idea, which which is kind of foreign to somebody like me, but I have to acknowledge that that's the way a lot of people see it. Going back again to this, it's, Jen, it's about human rights. It's about what, you know, it's about us protecting the rights of those people to not only live with, but, but to manage their resources in a sustainable way. So I think that's where we... That's where we get people to sit up and notice, and particularly young people, because I'm really interested in, you know, I'm working for Jam International now, and, you know, that's really what we're trying to do, is get the voices of these people heard, get them a platform, because often African, as we know, African voices are ignored, and, you know, in global politics and et cetera, they're not heard, and the same applies in Asia. 
I think our ethos really at Gemma is getting getting these voices heard, letting, giving people a platform, putting them in front of the policymakers, putting them in front of the decision makers, putting them out there on social media so they can tell their story and they can talk about their rights and they can talk about the need to have these rights acknowledged and protected. And, you know, we're working internationally, globally on the kind of legal side of this, but but really that's the message we need to send to people and particularly young people and, uh, you know, out in alternative media and say to them what you're, what you're basically doing by enforcing your particular preservationist doctrine or whatever it might be is you're denying these people fundamental human rights. Well, I mean, it's so powerful what you just said. And, and it's interesting because it brings up for me that there's another irony, right? The same people that are trying to enforce a preservationist doctrine are the very same people and countries that have been responsible for the vast majority of the destruction of the environment and the future stripping of human rights of people in these areas through climate change and through other actions right that are degraded and polluted their have their environment and those ecosystems that they rely on and so it's almost like, okay, we poison everything, and then we tell you also you can't use whatever's left that's good. That's such a great point, and I've got an interesting question for you that I think is interesting. How much of that do you think is because of this disconnect that's now being created between human beings and nature? And we just see it, it's more and more prevalent. People are not getting out there, large populations living in cities, never have any exposure outdoors, never have any interaction with wildlife, any wildlife or biodiversity in general. You were talking at the beginning of the the conversation about all of the stuff happening outside your window, so your connection is obvious. But how much of this do you think is about that disconnect that's just happening on such a scale now that people can't relate to these things anymore in any way or form? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because that is also the impetus for this this uh, podcast, right? It's called Wild Connection. And it's, it's because I firmly believe that we need to cultivate um, that connection because I believe it also impacts the way we connect with each other and the kind of society and world that we have. So the interesting thing is, is that I had a guest on um, yesterday, uh, not yesterday, last week, talking about albatrosses, uh, talking about albatrosses. And I asked him, how does he connect with nature? And he said, I don't understand the question because I'm always connected to nature. Everything I do as a living being. And I think that I would love for people to recognize the fact that you're alive and breathing and you step outside of your door. Even if you're in a city, there's a bird trying to make a living. There's an ant trying to make a living. There's a tree growing and trying to make a living. And everything you do and everything you have the ability to experience and enjoy is fundamentally tied to that. I think sometimes we have this idea that nature is out there. Mm. And, and there's one element of that that, of course, makes it easier to connect. But I live in a city. I do. I live in a city and it's a human constructed environment of a of a of a of a golf course, something that, you know, creates some conflict for me (laughs) just on the idea of golf courses. But this area doesn't have houses on it. It doesn't have buildings. So that means there's trees and there's water. So I've got a gator. I've got I've got uh, 
sandhill cranes that supposedly should migrate but i guess they've decided they're staying and i've got hawks and i've got osprey because they are fish in the water and um spoonbills and i don't uh, squirrels and so i don't have to go to south africa to connect with nature and so i would say that i invite people to think about what's outside their window what's in their backyard and and if you do that and if you think differently about nature's not out there you are part of nature Mm -hmm. i think that's what we're both saying we want people to recognize you are connected to nature and i think we are disconnected because i think we are disconnected uh, from each other and from those experiences and and maybe that's technology i don't really know right because that's another tricky one technology can be really useful for solving problems and creating solutions, right? To to um, help us advance certain conservation goals. And, and that is really important. So I don't wanna trash concert, uh, you know, uh, technology, you know, and technological advancements, but I, I do. I think that the fact that we can't relate to the, anything in the natural world yeah. uh, is a big problem because it always then becomes something over there and that we have to go over there to see and, and experience. And it's the special, you know, hard to reach thing. But the truth is you go for a walk and take a walk wherever you live and you will find something. If you can't focus on the air you're breathing or the sky above you, right? Or the grass next to you, you will find something alive that, that is trying to make a living. And that is no different than us. Absolutely. No, I think in for me, one of the key things that arises out of this disconnect is you, you pointed out that uh, you pointed out life, but it's the it's the circle of life and death, which is is fundamental to all life on the planet. It's that that circle which which you don't want to break. You know, breaking that circle is would re- really cause our destruction. But it seems that in this disconnect, a lot of people just find it really difficult to accept the death part of the circle in life and death and, and understanding that it's so important to continue, for life to continue, you know. And, and it's almost, you know, you were talking about having this discussion with people, and I've run into so many people just recently who have such a visceral response to things like hunting animals in Africa. And when you put all of these arguments in front of them and say to them, well, well, look, you know, if the alternative is, for example, that all all of these animals starve to death because you're not able to now take off enough animals to ensure their survival, in many ways that that would be a palatable alternative to them, as long as they don't have to experience on TV or wherever it must be this visceral death. So it becomes very much about ourselves. It becomes very much a uh, a self thing, and, and I say a selfish thing in this case, and really about what we feel good about, what makes us feel good, and and little consideration, as you said, of of the system at large and particularly the people living within that system so it's really interesting how this disconnect starts to work and and the mentality that it drives and how difficult that makes it makes it to reach out to people to open their minds open their hearts and say look you know you need to understand this on a different level you need to you need to see what the circle of life and death is all about and that 
it's intrinsic to our continue, not only our continued survival as a species, but for all of the species that live on this planet. You know, it's what it's what they do to stay alive. Well, and before I ask you what you would like to see, um, how you think people should connect with nature, something struck me, and so that was where I was going. But but something you said, you know, I think that my my. Um, what is that, 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 that soft spot, not soft spot, like a, a tenderness, but like where I, I struggle with what I see happening is go, circling back to human wildlife conflict, and, and especially with respect to large predators. So I, I feel like, and I don't know, I haven't really expressed this to you, but I'm going to say it. So we'll see where this goes. I feel like being human and existing in this world and on this earth carries with it a willingness to have the risk that sometimes bad things happen, including from predators, and that the idea that our response needs to be to exterminate or kill a predator that was doing what it was doing and for whatever reason there was a negative interaction, I I just find that very selfish. Right. So if I choose to go hiking in the Catalina Mountains where I know there are mountain lions, I know there are. Why do I have the right to decide, hey, if that mountain lion, if I stumble on a mountain lion with her cubs or on a kill of a deer and I'm not paying attention because I'm not aware of my surroundings and that mountain lion attacks me because it's defending its resources, its its way of making a living. And now everybody comes in and just shoots that mountain lion and the cubs uh, as retribution. I got a problem with that. I don't know. What do you What do you have to say about that? No, I think uh, you know. I am. I think it's a. It is a. It's a. Com- this is a complex problem, isn't it? But, but I. I'm inclined to agree with you, and I think. The reason for that is I just see so many of these communities that I'm that I work with, have worked with, continue to work with, in exactly the situation that you're on a day-to-day basis. And the thing is, their attitude, because they're not disconnected, is exactly what you're talking about. They they recognize that this is the situation I'm in. I, I live here with these animals. It is going to be a reality of, of, of my life. All they're asking for is, I I I need to be be able to uh, beyond that make a living out of this, as you so eloquently put. I need you know that's what I need to be able to do. That I'm willing to accept all of that. I'm willing to accept the large predators. I'm willing to accept the herbivores that run over my crop every time it gets green. Um, but I you know. At the same time, they need to pay their part. You know, they play their part in this, in 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 the whole the whole system because it is an ecosystem. And I think that you know they they have the attitude that you're talking about. They have that acceptance that you're talking about. These people's children and sometimes mothers and fathers, etc., get taken out by these wild animals, you know, but you don't, you don't see an immediate rush then, you know, to go and destroy the entire population. Sure, problem animals sometimes get removed and if they can get removed with benefits, all, all, all the better. But, but yeah, I think I agree with you in terms of the, the unequal response that you often see in many of these environments where, where an animal is just reacting naturally and human beings have put themselves in that place because that's the other thing that you find about people that are not disconnected they know when the situation's bad. You know, they don't get near a lioness and her cubs. They don't walk down the elephant path at night because they know where it is. So they, 
they have the skill set, whereas most of these people wandering around blindly in places they shouldn't be, you know, get into trouble because they're ignorant. Well, and they also have an arrogance. I'm going to just say it, a total arrogance of I have a right to do whatever I want in this space and every other creature just needs to leave me alone or behave as I wish for them to behave. Simple example. I'm walking down the street yesterday and there's a squirrel. Now, the squirrels around me are not starving. They're fine. They're good. There's a family and they're feeding this squirrel, feeding the squirrel. So I say, hey, are you guys feeding the squirrel? No, we're not feeding the squirrel. And I said, oh, that's good because then that's a dead squirrel. Now, people might say, oh, that's really harsh. You know, like it's not going to be a dead squirrel. I think they thought I meant I was going to kill the squirrel. So they didn't get it. But but the reality is, is like, you know, this idea that you can, you know better what this squirrel needs and it's blueberries. Okay, they're not finding blueberries out here. Right. You're also habituating it to interacting with people in a way that it didn't choose to. You manipulated that situation and it's going to put that squirrel at risk in future interactions. And it may even put a person. What if I go walking by that tree with the squirrel and the squirrel just is like food and jumps on me because it thinks all people have food. Mm -hmm. And I experienced this when I was in Nepal with the macaques. Um, So the rhesus macaques are have been fed by tourists and other people and this and i i experienced it in kruger actually with a vervet monkey i'm going to tell that story instead this vervet monkey <laughs> i was sitting in an enclosed picnic area but as you know vervet monkeys have you know used trees so there's no offense is not going to keep a vervet monkey out it will keep a lion out much appreciated um you know and so because you don't really get out of your car as a visitor you're not supposed to anyway, not if you wish to survive. Um, so so I'm sitting eating my lunch and there's a sandwich on a tray and there's a vervet monkey who drops down on the table, screams in my face and snatches my sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Now I thought, no problem, dude, you could have my sandwich. But that was a monkey to me that got fed by someone. Absolutely. And it actually could have, like people think, Oh, he's so cute, little monkey. Uh Uh-uh. I know somebody who had his nose bitten off by a marmoset, which weighs a pound and a half. And so a 10-pound monkey could just rip up my beautiful face. I know nobody's saying it right now. But, right, I don't want my face torn off by an angry monkey who didn't get to have my sandwich. Mm -hmm. So, So I feel like this sort of irresponsibility is a very arrogant you know, this touches on something you mentioned before, and it'd be interesting to get your take on this. Um, but you you spoke about technology and and the media that we're bombarded with the whole time. And I I have some strong feelings about this, but there's so much. And and I mean, we've we've kind of grown up, I guess, in that era. Maybe maybe me a little bit before. But um, you know, this exposure to things like uh, the Lion King, great program, and Nemo and and all of this and even you know the stuff that you're seeing on um, generally speaking that's produced by BBC or National Geographic and and I think you mentioned this earlier on it gives you a kind of an almost fantastical view of the thing and it's it happens somewhere else it's an and 
it's all looking beautiful out there, and it's and it's this fantasy island. And then these these other kind of movies are also giving the idea that animals are all our friends, and they speak just like we do, and and they behave like we do, and and you know they live in harmony. The sharks live with the groupers and the giant trevallies and everybody, and they're all chatting to each other, and and you get the odd mean one, but he's shoved off in a corner, and you know this is how children grow up, and so it's little wonder that we have this disconnect because that's how they wander out into the world thinking that animals should behave. Oh, I, I listen, I think probably this is a place, well, I've, I think I've aligned much more in, you know, as I've grown um, into, you know, the things that you and I talked about when we first met, I have very strong feelings about the content that is displayed. Um, I just, I really, I'm going to use the word despise because I do. I despise the shows that show people grabbing animals in the wild and shoving it into the camera and saying, look at this, you know, beautiful snake, da, 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 or, or, you know, because it's encouraging this idea that you actually also then go out and molest wildlife and and you know that that you have a right to to touch and and grab and interact physically with no regard for that species life its objectives that day whatever it is it's trying to accomplish and so and and it promotes this lack of respect and this is all, this is all I know how to say a lack of respect for the the life of any given individual or species in a given place and I, this is why I spoke out to those people. Really, I wanted to say, you're being disrespectful. Yeah. You're actually disrespecting that animal. But how can they help it when, you know, we sanction certain things and we promote certain things on media and all the TV shows are about the fantastical, as you pointed out, the bombastic and the, the invasive and I think most people in countries uh, that you've talked about that live with wildlife would go, are you nuts? <laughs> but what are you talking about? You want me to do what? Why would I do that? Yeah. They have just much more respect for their their um, environment and their place in it and how to relate to it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think though, I don't know how to change that because t- you know, television is all about ratings, which is all about money. And people want to see fantastical things. And yeah. and then you've got kids who are watching these things, making their own videos, going out and grabbing things. Right. Right. And it 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 really I gotta be honest, I get really angry. I get salty. <laughs> I get awfully salty about this topic. It's hard for me to talk, you know, appropriately with people. I don't do a good job of educating people because I'm so judgmental about it. Yeah. To be honest. No, I think that does. I think that does it. Make, does make it difficult, as you say, when when it seems when you've had the kind of experiences we've had, and, and we're fortunate to have had those and been in close contact, you know, with these animals and conservation in general, and the people that have to deal with them. And I think so. We're we have that first-hand experience, and you almost take many of these things for granted that people won't behave in a weird manner around animals. But and then you, when it starts to happen, you realize, well, you know, they're just coming from a very different place. And, and as you say, it really is about educating people. It is about edu- and you know, we've touched on this. So all of these things that you you use the word respect. We spoke we spoke about rights, not only of 
people. We spoke a little bit about animal rights and where that sits in the hierarchy, etc. But it is, it is generally, as you say, just having the respect, prepare, being prepared to be open-minded about this, understanding that you know people have different circumstances, and it's and about not being selfish about the whole thing, which goes back to your comment about arrogance. You know? Yeah, I mean, and and I I think it's respect for other people and cultures and the way that they need to make you know to to interact with the environment that they live in. It's and they have a much deeper respect, I think, for the wildlife that they um, live with than people who watch a show and think, oh yeah, that's a good idea to just you know anytime I see a snake, I'm just going to grab it because why not? Um, that means I love animals and. I would I would argue that that someone like you even more than me really uh, I love animals in a very you know um, way where I want people to recognize this the the the, the rights and and respect but also I care about people who who live in these areas and their rights um, and I want everyone to see that connection but you have been on the ground you know engaged in this in a really big way and created a much bigger impact. And so I feel really grateful, one, that you're my friend and that I've been able to learn so much from you and to have this kind of conversation, but that you're there, that you are doing things and that that your, your mission from what I'm hearing is not just wildlife conservation, you have a deep love of animals and the environment and you're integrating that and, and, and making people part of that equation. And I, I just, I just a lot of respect for you as, as a person, um, and a professional and yeah, I don't know what else to say other than I'm so, thank you for being on the show. No, I really appreciate it. And I think, uh, you're, you know, I, I'm a regular listener of your podcast, and I think you're you're one of those people that's opening up the kind of communication that we really need to have. So I, I appreciate being on your show. I mean, appreciate having this opportunity to talk about the things. It's been really interesting, and and thank you for what you're doing in in enabling this, and, and again enabling these voices to be heard. And hopefully, we can do more of that together with other people in the future. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot for us to do together. Um, thanks again for being here, Craig Bruce. Thanks, Jane. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. That was the show. You know, some of the issues that came up, especially towards the end, when we were talking about human rights and animal rights, and we really were discussing how animals and wildlife are portrayed, and natural areas actually, are portrayed in the media, on popular television, and it's, it's a real sore point for me because I'm wanting people to reconnect with nature, but the way in which we do that really determines how successful all the efforts by someone like Craig are, are putting into conserving and protecting areas. Now, I might lean quite heavily on the, the side of animal rights, um, or I should say other animal rights, because after all, humans are animals. And you know, next week is our, uh, at least the Independence Day for the United States. I thought I would pick up that thread and next week I'm going to be talking about 
the landscape that is emerging in uh, with, with respect to animal rights and what that means uh, for how we change the way that we interact, whether it is when you go to visit wildlife in other places or the kind of interaction you have with wildlife that are in your own backyard. So uh, don't forget to tune in. And again, if you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and uh, share the the show with your friends so that other people can start to find us and enjoy the content that we are putting out. Um, Thanks again and talk to you next week.